This episode of the 10A Podcast is sponsored by TOC Public Relations, the only PR, marketing, and strategic communication firm that specializes in working with public safety agencies, associations, and businesses. TOCPR is also the parent company of Law Enforcement Social, which provides social media, PIO, and content creation training for all public safety. Be sure to check them out at TOCPublicRelations.com and LawEnforcement.Social. This episode of the 10A Podcast is dedicated to the 13 victims of the Borderline Nightclub shooting. The views and opinions expressed on the 108 podcast are those of the authors and guests individually. They do not necessarily reflect an official policy or position. The 108 podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not affiliated with any entity, agency, or department. This week on the 108 podcast I survived the borderline nightclub shooting Of course I want to clip for you to borderline one person advising there's a subject inside shooting the RP advised the subject was shooting at everybody for some three I'm going in the main entrance we're making entry we got multiple people down 473 is down and unresponsive I'm not going to lie to you, Ken. I was scared shitless. That night was the most scared I've ever been. And I just accepted this is the situation that I'm in. It's not going to get any better unless I do what I need to do. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever and whenever you're listening. Welcome to the 108 Podcast. I'm your host, 108. This is episode 238, the very first in a series that I'm calling I Survived. Now, here at the 10A Podcast, I've done a bunch of mini-series throughout the show's run. Uh, you guys may know the names of them. You may not know them. Uh, we have the Cop Council episodes. Those are the ones where we have a bunch of cops come in and we just talk about topics. We've done the leadership episodes. We've talked relationships. We've talked officer-involved um, deaths. We've talked about a lot. Then we have the drunk cop episodes where we have a bunch of cops and non-cops come. We get drunk and, and we just have a good time. Then we have the Jersey Boys episodes. And in the future, we're going to have more and more of these types. But I Survived is going to be a little different. It's going to be less lighthearted than some of the ones that I just mentioned. I Survived is going to be my chance to give stories to people involved in critical incidents with a heavy emphasis in life or death situations such as an active mass shooter. These are stories that show true heroism, they show true mental resiliency, and they show true bravery. The reason I felt the need to share these stories is because we hear about them on the news. They're popular for that news cycle, maybe a week or a month, and then the story disappears. We don't know the true outcome. Sometimes the perpetrator, if they are taken into custody, they go through a lengthy legal process that the news really doesn't cover. Or, and more importantly, we never hear about the responders or the survivors. We don't know what they did to survive. We don't know how they're still surviving. And we don't know how their mental state is before, during, and after the event. 
I Survived is going to be my chance to bring all those stories and all those components to you, the listener, to hopefully share to the masses and give some insight where the light hasn't been shined. Today, our first I Survived story comes from Thousand Oaks, California. On November 7th, 2018, a mass shooting occurred in Thousand Oaks, California at the Borderline Bar and Grill, a country western bar frequently patronized by college students. In this incident, 13 people were killed, including the perpetrator, who died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, and a police officer who was shot multiple times, with the fatal wound accidentally being fired by another officer. One other person sustained a gunshot wound, and 15 others were injured by incidental causes. Here's how the event played out. At 11.18 p.m., a gunman entered the borderline bar and grill and opened fire at approximately 260 patrons and employees inside. At the time, the bar was hosting a regularly scheduled college country night. It was a popular event among students in the area, especially those from the universities of Pepperdine University, California Lutheran University, California State University Channel Islands, and Moore Park College. The perpetrator was armed with a legally purchased 45 caliber Glock 21 semi-automatic pistol and seven banned high-capacity magazines, carrying a total of 190 rounds, along with a folding knife, 10 smoke bombs, and two fireworks. Upon entering the bar through the front door, the suspect first killed the cashier nearby, then started to shoot at the patrons. He fired a total of 61 rounds and then threw smoke bombs. Many of the victims died within the first few minutes of the shooting while they were lying on the floor or trying to charge at the suspect. Witnesses described the gunman as a heavily tattooed white male dressed in entirely black. Some people shattered the bar's windows, allowing many to flee, while some others hid in an employee bathroom or the attic. During the shooting, the suspect answered a phone call made by the mother of a patron who escaped, and he also made several posts on Instagram expressing his thoughts. According to news reports, the suspect posted on social media at 11.24 p.m., quote, It's too bad I won't get to see all the illogical and pathetic reasons people will put in my mouth as to why I did it. Fact is, I had no reason to do it, and I just thought, fuck it, life is boring, so why not? Then at 11.27 p.m., the suspect posted, I hope people call me insane. Wouldn't that just be a big ball of irony? Yeah, I'm insane, but the only thing you people do after these shootings is hopes and prayers, or keep you in my thoughts, every time. And wonder why these keep happening. Followed by two smiley face emojis. At 11.19pm, two California Highway Patrol officers on a traffic stop nearby were alerted to the shooting by people who managed to escape. They arrived at the bar's parking lot a minute later and were joined by Ventura County Sheriff's Sergeant Ron Hellis four minutes after that. The three officers ventured towards the building with Hellis and one of the CHP officers entering the building at 11.25pm. A minute later, they came under fire from the suspect, who had been monitoring their movements through nine security cameras visible on a monitor in the front office, where he had been taking shelter. In the ensuing gunfight, the sergeant was shot five times by the suspect, who used a flashlight with a laser sight on his pistol in the large, darkened, smoke-filled room. Positioned between the suspect and the CHP officer, the sergeant was accidentally struck by a bullet from the officer's rifle. The suspect stopped his account following the exchange of gunfire with police. At 11.37 p.m., he lit a firework and threw it out of the bar's front office. 
40 seconds later, he threw another firework out of the office. At 11.38 p.m., he killed himself. That's 20 minutes. 20 minutes of absolute hell. Nine men and three women died during the shooting. Seven of those were college students, and one was a recent graduate. The four others killed were 54-year-old Ventura County Sheriff Sergeant Ron Hellis, a 48-year-old bouncer, a 33-year-old Marine Corps veteran, and a 27-year-old Navy veteran who was actually at the 2017 Las Vegas shooting during the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival. They all died from multiple gunshots, and one victim was stabbed in the neck. Ten of the civilians died inside the bar, while the 11th died outside. And as I said earlier, 16 were injured, but only one was injured by gunfire. A lot of times when these stories come out, we find a lot of information about the perpetrator. You're probably wondering, who was this guy? And I'll be honest, I don't give a shit. I'd rather talk about the victims and their survivors. So first, the victims. Sergeant Ron Hellis was a 29-year veteran of the Ventura County Sheriff's Office who was planning to retire the next year. When the news of the shooting came in, Hellis, who was then on the phone with his wife, rushed to the bar. He arrived within two minutes of the first 911 call. One of his fellow sergeants described Sergeant Hellis as a cop's cop, saying, quote, The fact that he was the first in the door doesn't surprise me at all. He's just one of those guys that wouldn't hesitate in a situation. Sean Adler was a 48-year-old security guard and former high school wrestling coach who routinely stayed late at the borderline to make sure patients got home safe. Cody Kaufman was 22, and he was on his way to fulfilling his dream of serving in the United States military. He was the beloved older sibling to three brothers between the ages of six and nine. Blake Dingman was a 21-year-old Newbury Park resident. Jake Dunham was also a 21-year-old Newbury Park resident who was at the bar with aforementioned Blake Dingham. Elena Housley was 18. She was a freshman at Pepperdine University planning to study law. Daniel Manrique was a 33-year-old Marine Corps veteran who was deployed to Afghanistan and was a radio operator in 2007. He served for six years and returned to California and recently landed a regional management position with a veterans nonprofit called Team Red, White, and Blue. Justin Meek, 23 years old, was a recent graduate of CLU with a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. He was a choir and a cappella singer as well as an employee at the borderline. Christina Morissette was 20 years old. She worked at the Streamline. She liked to hike, draw, do makeup, and just bought her first car, a 2017 Jeep Renegade. Telemachus Orfanos was a 27-year-old Navy veteran who had already survived the Route 91 Harvest Festival shooting just a year prior. Noelle Sparks was 21, a college student, active churchgoer, and all-around good girl, that's a quote. She frequently was a patron at the borderline, and she worked at a nearby church in Westlake Village where she assisted with youth programs. Those are the victims. Those are the people that need to be remembered, not the monster that barged into the nightclub and took them from their friends and family. So that's who we're going to talk about. And now, it is my 
utmost honor to get California resident CJ onto the show. And he is going to tell us his perspective of that night in November. CJ, back in 2018, was an off-duty police officer. Enjoying a night out, celebrating completion of field training. He, a couple other co-workers and a bunch of friends, were out there enjoying what seemed to be a normal night out. That's not really a situation that's odd to police officers. We go out there, we cut up, we have a nice time. We always think about what could happen and what if, and we frankly hope that it never happens. So now, without further ado, we will hear CJ's story and kind of his insight about this incident and how he moves forward. I hope you guys enjoy, and I hope you guys take a little bit of information and insight from my guest. Ladies and gentlemen, here's CJ on I Survived. We're back and uh, and joining me, we've got my buddy CJ. Uh, this is going to be a very interesting conversation. It's going to be a different kind of conversation than we usually have. I'm super excited for it. Um, going to learn a lot. It's going to be a different perspective, I think, than a lot of people are used to having. I, you know, I think when we have incidents like this, um, we get spoon fed what we're supposed to know from the media, and that's it. And then a week goes by. And then that story goes away and that's it, you know, but the people that are there, the people that respond, the people that survive, they have to live with everything that happened. It's not just a pop, you know, a, a popular news story for them. It's their life. So CJ, first and foremost, thank you so much for taking time and sharing the story with me today. Hey, yeah, of course. You know, I, I appreciate your, your podcast and your meme page. So this is, almost a dream come true to actually meet the 10 8 <laughs> oh, well, thank you thank you you flattery will get you everywhere sir <laughs> uh, <laughs> um but first and foremost before we get into it um i'll let you go ahead introduce yourself let us know who you are where you're from and then uh then we'll start talking about uh brass tacks yeah okay so i mean you know i'm coming in as as a newcomer you have a lot of well-known names on your podcast um so just for people know who I am. Uh, I've been in law enforcement for the past five years. And I'd say I've had my fair share of experience. I wouldn't say that I'm experienced, but I've had some experience in very dynamic tactical situations on duty. Um, so the experience I had off duty was a little bit different. Um, but hey, you know, it, it's one of those situations that you pray never happens to you. Um, but it's been occurring more and more. So I, I, I want to take this opportunity to at least provide some insight and uh, maybe something to chew on. I wouldn't say so much advice because, you know, you could take it or leave it, but at least something to think about while you go throughout your day and and, and when you uh, get into a patrol car and, and start your shift, something to think about. Sure, sure, absolutely. And, and, and when your shift ends, something to keep in your mind. Uh, I think that, like you said, things are happening all too often. Uh, way, it seems to be way more frequent that, that these incidents are happening. Um, 
uh, or maybe they're being reported more. I don't know. Um, I could definitely pull up some numbers and figure that out, but it just, I feel, see, here's the thing. I think we get people who, I don't know. We'll, we'll kind of, we'll dive into that a little bit. Cause that's something that's, you know, the frequency and the occurrence and all that, that's definitely something. Um, but let's talk about, so you, you have five years on now. Um, when this incident happened, how, where were you at in your career? Uh, I would say a little over a year. So I, okay. I had passed uh, FTO school and we were actually out celebrating because I was with a couple other friends who I went through FTO school with. And the fact that we'd finished was a big milestone because now we're, we're bona fide coppers. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're set on track and, and now we can go out and be our own our own officer. So that was something yeah. to celebrate. Sure, sure, absolutely. And I can think of, I personally went out and celebrated when I got off the FTO. I know many people that did the exact same thing. So that's a normal experience. You know, you go to, go to the local watering hole, you have a few drinks, you celebrate. Obviously, it's a big deal. Just like when you graduate the academy or get in or whatever. Um, so you were, you're a year on, just passing FTO. So no special teams at that point. No. Were you prior military? No, no, I wasn't. So just okay. uh, straight from, from college. I was one of those kids. I went to college first, got my degree, mm -hmm. and then uh, I signed up. Okay. Know, trying, yeah. So, so you, you went in and uh, you went out that night. So what, let's walk through exactly what happened from your point of view. So tell us, you know, from the beginning to, to the end, and we'll, we'll kind of go from there. Well, you know, it was one of those usual nights that you, you meet up with your buddies, you, uh, you know, have your roll call at somebody's house, try to figure out what the game plan is. And we heard about this bar that was having a, a country night. You know, it's, it's one of those dance, dance halls and bars. And so we decided, Hey, you know what, let's go. So we drove out there and, uh, when we got there, turns out there's other police officers there as well. I, I'd say, I think there are three other agencies or at least officers from those agencies who are out to have a good time. So we, we felt pretty comfortable in our environment. Everybody was having a good time. And I'd say about half hour into our night, we hear this explosion. Now, at least our academy, when we're going through, uh, every now and again, an instructor will pop out with uh, a gun full of blanks and just crank off a couple of rounds just to, to get into our mindset what a gunshot sounds like. So when we heard that first explosion, I thought in my mind, hey, that was a gunshot. And then I oriented myself to where I heard it. And uh, that's when, when I saw the gunman. You know, he big as day and uh, yeah, he came in, just started shooting. So at that point, um, training kicked in. I know it's, it's cheesy to say, but training did kick in uh, from the academy, from time in the field. Just my mindset went from, hey, it's an off day. I can relax to uh, this is serious. Mm -hmm. So uh, me and my buddies, we all do what we were taught to do and look for cover first. We dove down uh, behind the bar and then we oriented ourselves and found a, an exit door. It was maybe 20 or so feet away, but there was a wall of people there and everybody's hiding under, under uh, tables and stools. And so we started grabbing people and telling them, get to the door. You see that door, get to the door, get to the door. And I distinctly remember this one gal she was under one of those stand-up tables in the fetal position 
And I went up to her. I said, you need to get to that door right now. And she just looked at me and said, I can't. And I checked her. Are you hit? She goes, no, I'm, I'm scared. So I literally pulled her out from under the table and I told her, I'm going to be right behind you. Just get to that door. So we lagged behind. We tried to get as many people as, as we could towards that door while trying our best to keep eyes on, on the gunman. Because if you lose sight of the gunman, you're behind the curve. So all this occurred and maybe, well, shoot, you know, in that instance, time slowed down. Sure. It, uh, felt, it probably felt like an hour that you were dealing with it. Yeah. And he, he didn't have any specific target. He was just pulling the trigger. And so, you know, in, in maybe a span of 30 seconds, 45 seconds to a minute, uh, we tried to get as many people out of that section of the bar as we could. And then we ran out the door and kind of regrouped and uh, gathered that, that same group of people. Cause as we we're directing them to the door, we're like, Hey, get out to the parking lot, uh, hide behind the, an engine block, something like that. And uh, just find safety. So as we're getting out uh, the sudden explosion of, of multiple gunshots, just go off a lot faster, a lot more. And I can hear a distinct difference between some of the gunshots. I didn't know what was going on at first. Um, but all I knew was there's, there's fire being laid down. So let's get these people away from the bar. And, uh, me and my buddies directed them to, uh, first responders. We could see the, the reds and blues coming. So we just kind of directed them to, uh, the responding officers and responding medical staff. We did a little bit of triage along the way, trying to figure out who was injured. Uh, most people just had cuts and scrapes from glass and uh, bruising because people just kind of trampled over each other. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, we got everybody to where they needed to be. Um, and then we ended up being interviewed. And by the end of the night, I'd say it was maybe four or five in the morning by the time we got cut loose. And then we just went home. Mm -hmm. yeah. So... We're going to go back to the very beginning. You're at the bar. About how many people would you say were in the bar that you knew? like Or not knew, but like that, how many would you say were there? Oh, it was packed. It was a packed bar. Packed night. Um, what was yeah. it, Friday night, Saturday? Uh, it was a Friday night. Okay. Yeah. And the, the bar setting, was it like your typical like dark dance club or was it bright? What? How did, that, how did it look? So it, it was kind of set up in – two sections almost there was the dance section which you know the main lights were turned off and they had the the party lights going and then in the section that we were in it was all uh tables stand-up tables it was brightly lit and you know almost shoulder to shoulder there's there's quite a few people in there okay so i mean you know walking around was difficult um but your vision was okay did the gunman come in on your side or on the dance floor side uh, so he came in the front door. Uh, it's almost right in the middle of the two. So as okay. you walk in, you can see both. Mm -hmm. You can see both sections. Gotcha. So, so you're, you're standing at the table, you're, you're hanging out, um, drinking at this point. Yeah. We were about a pitcher and a half into it. Okay. But the fact is that you didn't let that, um, kind of deaden your sense of awareness, right? No. Like you still knew no. everything that was going on. I always, whenever I go out 
uh my girlfriend she gets on me a bunch she thinks i'm being nosy because i'm always looking at people i'm like i'm not looking at i mean i am but i'm scanning like it's not it's different it's not like you know am i checking people out okay maybe but i'm also (laughs) i'm scanning you know what i mean like i'm trying to see what's going on got to know where your exits are got to see if there's a guy coming in or a girl coming in that looks questionable um even if even if we're drinking like that's that's an important thing for me to know who and what is around me at all times exactly so i i when i go out with with my buddies um we don't go too deep into the suds we uh we keep our wits about ourselves mm-hmm. just you know we, we don't want to be those sloppy people at the bar you know sure. regardless regardless of whether or not we're looking for for sketchy people or an incident like this to happen because we didn't expect an incident like this to happen i mean sure. we talked about it but um did you know, any of you have firearms on you? No. So that was that was kind of our roll call was, okay, what, what's the plan? And one of us brought up, well, you know, it's a cop-friendly bar. Are we going to carry? And we ultimately decided, no, it's, you know, guns, alcohol, and cops do not go together. Or guns okay. and alcohol in general do not go together. Correct, yeah. So we, we did not carry uh, for that specific reason. And, you know... <laughs> I, I wouldn't change anything about it, mm-hmm. you know, so some, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, if, if I had to do that night over again, which I pray to God, I don't have to, um, I, I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, no, I understand completely. When, when my buddies and I go out, um, you know, everyone's got a DD. Well, we have a DG, you know, designated uh-huh. gun. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes, you know, depending on where you go or if you're going to like a different city or a different bar where you don't know, or if there's security, uh, you, you gotta leave it home or, or like, uh, for me, I like going to concerts, you know, and you get, you get patted down, you get scanned down and you can't carry, you just, you can't, um, and, or, or even sports events or whatever. And I know there's some people that they go, Oh, well, if I can't carry, I'm not going like, dude, I, I can't, I can't do that. Like, right. You, you still need to, to have a life, you know, and, and I get it. Um, being able to carry, it's not just a, a constitutional right, but it's, it's, at the end of the day, you're still that protector mm-hmm. and, and you want to be able to protect your family. And I understand that part, but the, the stress of carrying a firearm in a, a very populated area just diminishes the whole point of going out. Right. Exactly. Exactly. If you're going there to, re- in my opinion, if you're going there to relax, to unwind, um, you, you need to, you need to leave it at home literally and figuratively, you know, right. you, whether there's a designated gun whether you just trust that there's going to be someone there, which is tough. That's tough for cops to do. Like, you know, it's hard to, we put our, our lives in other people's hands all the time. Um, but it's hard when you don't know who's around you. So that's where it kind of gets a little difficult. And I understand that. Um, but, but for me, uh, very rarely when I go out and I know I'm going drinking, do I carry, but I always make sure that I have someone with me. Um, okay. So you got that. You, you've been, you, you drink a little bit. So the first explosion goes off that you hear. And mm-hmm. so you said like you recognize it as a gunshot. Um, were you able to kind of figure out the direction it was coming from? Were you, how did that go down? Cause I feel like, I don't know. I think a lot of people, especially cops, obviously they play these scenarios off in their head, but the moment that bang happens, no one, it's like Mike Tyson says, you know, everyone's got a plan to get punched in the mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, what was, what was that like? And how did you, how'd you go from, like, I know you told it, said it, but 
that switch. I mean, that's that's a that's an instantaneous switch. Well, you know, I I mean, I grew up shooting, going to the gun range and hunting and and all that. So when you hear a gunshot at the range or when you're out hunting, you 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 almost expect it. That you expect mm-hmm. to hear gunshots, and and that's the situation that you're in. When you're out and you hear a gunshot, it's it's not natural. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a minute of, or not a minute, but you know, a, a pause of, I just heard a gunshot, but I'm out. Like I'm, I'm having a good time. So that's not natural. Something's going down. And you know, the, the gunshot was louder than the music playing. So it goes through my mind. Okay. That, that was close. That was somewhere nearby. Mm-hmm. And, and I can clearly hear where it was coming from. So I just, I just oriented to, to that area. And yeah. like I and said, that's when, when I that's saw when the switch happened. Gotcha. Yeah. Now you, you see the gunman from the reports that I read and everything. He was, um, you know, he had a face, what do you have? He had like a covering on his face or something and he was all kind of covered up. Yeah. So he, he clearly stands out, you know, mm-hmm. everybody there is wearing jeans, flannels, Daisy Dukes and, and, tied up t-shirts so him wearing what he was wearing makes him stand out mm-hmm. and and you know that he isn't there for the reason that everybody else is there sure sure he, it was obvious that this was serious at that point the moment you saw him yes and and uh the second gunshot you could tell okay it, it wasn't like uh two dudes are are fighting each other and one pulls out a gun you could tell that he 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 was there for a specific reason, mm-hmm. right? Uh, just by his body language and and all that. So, you know, the, the the picture that I had of him was very short in terms of time, but it was long enough for me to to recognize what was going on. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that that initial view that you had of him that's probably etched into your brain. Like you, that has probably not gone away at all. No. No, it's still there, you know, and, and it, it occurred five, four or five years ago, but it's still there and not in such a, a way that's negative upon my life. In fact, I have, you know, the situation has, has made me kind of change how I look at the job and what I want to do. You know, some guys, they, they get a hard on for, for DUI arrest or, or narco arrests. Mine is tactical situation response. And so that's something that's, you know, this experience kind of drove me towards because unfortunately it's, it's not the first time and it's definitely not going to be the last time mm-hmm. uh, as, as much as I hate to say it, the world sure. that we're in right now, it's, it's going to happen again. Yeah. So I, I mean, take just that. look at the, look at the last month where we had two major or three major ones happen. I right. Mean. You know, and, and that those are, are in the media. Um, it's funny that you brought up in the beginning about how, it seems like this stuff is happening more frequently, but I think it's more so media coverage mm-hmm. uh, uh, on on social media. After one of the shootings earlier this month, uh, one of my friends had posted uh, just a list of what the FBI considers an active shooter. And there's a lot on there that people don't hear about mm-hmm. or don't recognize. Uh, right. So they don't get as much media coverage. Yeah, I um after after the one in Texas, I was doing some well actually what what started this whole project of mine, this this episode and whatever, is I was taking a class at work 
uh, regarding dispatcher response to active shooters. And uh, that kind of piqued my interest. And I was like, man, it'd be, you know, I listened and watched different videos of, of first responders responding to active shooters. And I was like, man, this would be an, a very interesting topic to talk about. Um, so I went and I did some research. I went to Wikipedia and I looked up uh, mass shootings in uh, just, it, it was actually worldwide. And I probably shouldn't have looked this up in on the, work computer but that's fine um but <laughs> it was insane the number of shootings that were there and i was looking for the ones i knew the columbine the stoneman marjorie douglas one um virginia tech like the ones i knew those were the ones that were hard to find there were just so many and it was buried between all that and i was like there all these shootings happen and you know i i can't remember what the fbi stat is to count as a mass shooting um uh, three, or three victims three victims okay yes. so the fact that you have all these shootings that are classified as it it's insane i mean it, it's thank god the media doesn't run with that because uh -huh. you know <laughs> there wouldn't be a gun for anyone to hold on to um legally it's just you're right i think it's it's terrifying and i'm glad that this incident kind of opened your eyes this way. Mm -hmm. um, now, when you were when you were um, leaving the bar and you saw the first responders entering, what was that like? As far as like, you know, you at that point you are a police officer and you see other police officers coming. Where was your mind at with that? Were you like, obviously, you said you were triaging people and you were telling them where to go, but did any, was there anything else with your mind? Like, you know, you had to go in with them or anything like that? No, no. In fact, the, the route that we took um, to get to the outer perimeter of the crime scene, we didn't actually run into any police officers who were responding. Okay. Uh, we kind of took a wide swooping route and we ended up uh, at kind of a, a, a section where there's, there's two, two ambulances, uh, a firefighter truck, and then two deputies. And so I, I kind of advised everybody, hey, you know what? Go up to the deputies. Don't don't crowd them because they're they're on edge. But just stand by with them and and listen to their direction. So I didn't actually see anybody running into the bar who, gotcha. who was a, a law enforcement officer. I understand. Um, now you said that your training in the academy and through being in the field uh, helped you know what and how to respond what what it specific trainings that you experienced um helped you know what to do uh just just being in the field um like i said I've, I've been through a decent amount of tactical situations in which when i'm on duty we set up perimeters uh we have rescue ambulances standing by and uh, the fire department standing by. So I knew that at some point we would run into first responders in that general vicinity. And, and the layout of where that bar is, it's right next to a freeway. And then uh, on the other side is residential. Hmm. So I knew that, okay, they're setting up probably most likely towards residential. And it's just kind of going off of a hunch of, this is how that, we would do it. So right, that you understood the tactics, so you knew where to kind of lean towards. Right. Got it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So 
so the incident happens. You said that you got interviewed, obviously, by law enforcement. That mm-hmm. again, that's common procedural and everything. What was the aftermath for that? You said you didn't go home till four or five a.m. But was that it? Were you never contacted again, or were there more follow-ups? What what happened from there? After that, it, it um, I didn't hear, hear anything back from investigators. Um, I think they they had enough witnesses to uh, build a, a, a basic understanding of what occurred. So I didn't hear from detectives afterwards, which, you know, it is what it is. And uh, the aftermath was, I didn't realize how much time had passed, I guess, because we were just, we were corralled in an area and uh, just one by one were interviewed by different officers. And then once they got what they needed, they said, okay, you guys are, are good to go. Mm-hmm. But at that point, you know, it probably felt like a few minutes, but it was several hours. Yeah. Yeah. In the days immediately after, how did it affect your life? Were you on edge? Were you the exact opposite? Were you like super calm and cool and collected? Like what, what was that like? The days after were almost surreal. I remember getting home and uh, uh, jumping in the shower and letting the, the water run over me. And I looked down and <laughs> I, I saw uh, blood in the bottom of, of uh, my shower. What I forgot to mention was as I was heading out of the bar, I ran past a window and something nailed me in the head and it knocked me end over end. And somebody, somebody had thrown a bar stool out the window oh. to, to make an, another exit. And that bar stool clocked me right on the side of the head. and. Uh, left a nice little gash in my hairline that I didn't even realize was there until I I started showering. But uh, yeah, I just remember laying in bed and thinking, did that really just happen? And um, me and and the two other guys I was with, we we grew pretty close afterwards. Uh, We we checked in with each other several times a day, um, just as like a support group and just kind of talked mm-hmm. you know we we just we talked about the incident and uh i think that really helped with trying to understand and wrap our head around what happened you know hearing somebody else say yeah that actually happened kind of makes it a little bit more surreal or i'm not not surreal but um like real yeah and and makes it understanding it helps mm-hmm. you understand what you went through sure sure and it I mean, it's definitely good, obviously, that you had someone or some people that you knew and trusted to to get through it and kind of help you with it. I think it's I couldn't even imagine, first off, being in that situation, but then just going home. You know what I mean? Like, that's Mm -hmm. that's it. That's the hard part. Like, you know, I've been in critical incidents on the job and you go home and it's like, shit, life has to continue. How? Like things are so much different than they were several hours ago. How do I just, you know, shower, sleep, eat? Like, you know, your whole rhythm gets rocked mm-hmm. by one incident. And now, you know, critical incidents at work, that's accept- that's expected, right? Like that's, that's right. the job. But when you're off duty, you're supposed to be safe. Like that's supposed mm-hmm. to be your time. You're not supposed to worry, not supposed to. So, you know, the idea of, experiencing that in a in a safe place you know at a, at a bar with music and just a good time coming home 
like that's that's got to be such a crazy experience to go through on top of the one that already happened you know what i mean like it's like almost like a second incident at that point right yeah and and um you know it, it all comes down to to mentality uh in terms of you you got to push yourself to do those daily activities you mm-hmm. have to actually like cognitively think hey bubba it's time to eat you know it, it's it's 5 30 6 o'clock in the evening you got to make something to eat you know and uh you, you just have to be a little more willing to push yourself to go back to your daily life mm-hmm. and and you know, I, I think as as police officers, it's a little bit easier for us to do that kind of thing. Um, mm. My my heart goes out to everybody else who who was there that was was not law enforcement. I can't even imagine how they coped with it. Um, and you know, every, every day I kind of say a little prayer for them. You know, hope that they're they're fine in their life and and uh, everything's moving forward as it should be, despite the incident that they went through. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you said that experiencing this kind of changed or not even changed, but kind of altered your mindset and kind of really honed in the importance of tactical training and things like that. So let's talk about that. How, so, you know, obviously you were brand new, you were just cleared at FTO. How has that, how has this incident shaped your career from? So it, it shaped it in several different levels. Um, the first one is just being prepared when you go out on patrol every day, you know, um, before this incident, I didn't carry a whole lot of gear in, in my bag. I had, you know, the standard issued equipment reports, ticket book, uh, you know, all, all that stuff. But then afterwards I kind of sat down, took inventory of my equipment and then realized what I needed more of and what I needed less of. So now I carry, uh, extra ammo for both uh, my duty pistol and uh, for our, our shotgun. I carry different types of ammo for the shotgun. Um, I've built a, a gunshot wound kit, basically. Um, so it, it involves occlusive dressings, uh, uh, combat gauze, tourniquets, shears, basically everything to patch up any wound. And And I think that's something that a lot of cops have gotten away from in terms of building extra gear. You know, I, I've sat down with guys that, you know, it's my first time working with them. Hey partner, what do you carry? Okay, cool. Do you have extra mags? And they're like, nah, brother, I, I carry what's on my belt, you know? And, and I don't want to say it's the wrong attitude, but it, it could use some improvement. Um, just having that, that extra gear there in case things go, go sideways. So, um, and then on top of that, I've taken it upon myself to take training outside of, of my work. So uh, our, our department offers a lot of in-service training. Uh, some of our station supervisors will put on like training. So if it's a slow night, they'll work with us with the traffic stops and building searches and stuff like that, which is fine and dandy. But it, if you want higher level of, of training, you got to do it on your own time. And so I've found a bona fide shooting school that offers a wide range of, of classes. They're usually two to three day classes um, in, in everything from just pistols to shotguns, to rifles, to sniper school, to even just 
uh, straight up active shooter training and, and uh, paramedic school. So I've, I've taken that upon myself and I try to encourage my coworkers to do the same. You know, we're all adults. You can't necessarily tell an adult what to do and expect them to do it right away. But I still try to encourage them to seek some some extra training because at, at the end of the day, if things go sideways, that person is, is going to be your partner. You know, you, you may be the, the first two on scene and you have to have not just the gear, but the mentality to go into that kind of situation. Yeah, I think the mentality thing is so important. I think we get so disenfranchised about the severity of the work we do. Uh, I think we get kind of downtrodden with all the bullshit we deal with. You know, the barking dogs, the civil complaints, the shoplifting. It's like it becomes like total bullshit. You know what I mean? Like, and it's just it it gets you into that level of complacency. And we all know the saying. Right. But then when that call comes out, when that call comes out, what are you going to do? Like, you got to you got to first off, dust off all the shit that like you've had the cobwebs up in your brain and like say, hey, it's go time. Mm-hmm. And and now suddenly, you know, it, it's the real game. It matters. Like you can't you can't go from zero to 100 that quickly. You're going to fail. It's not right. you're setting yourself up for failure to do so. Um, I was talking to somebody and we were talking about like night shift. You know, when you hit like that three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning time, uh, most guys are fried. They're they're toasted. Right. They, they you know, they're done. Um what happens when an active shooter comes out then what happens if there's like, you know, a home invasion or whatever might, you know, that, that call, um, you got to wake your ass up. You know what I mean? Like sometimes actually literally wake up, you know, you get those sleepies and whatever. And I, I think that's where the mindset is so important. You need to remember that every moment that you are 10, eight is life or death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and exactly. I think, I think that goes entirely to what you're saying about making sure your gear is not only uh, there, but it's sufficient, making sure that it's, you know, queued up and ready to go. Like how many guys ca- ter- carry tourniquets, um, but they don't carry it on themselves or they have it like stashed away in their bag. You know what I mean? Like yeah. get your shit together, basically. <laughs> basically. And, and, you know, uh, and on top of that, you know, I've worked with guys that, that they have the money so they buy you know the the benelli m4 and and all this tactical gear uh, one guy on my shift he had benelli m4 pistol grip with lights and a, a red dot sight and sling and just all tacticaled out and i asked him hey man how, how often do you go to the range oh just to qualify with it oh, okay you know so you've you've put some rounds through it but you you got to practice with the gear that you have just because you have it doesn't mean it's going to be useful you have to practice with it i mean uh, my gun that i carry on duty i've probably put four or five thousand rounds through it in different situations you know standard shooting metal or, or paper but i've also you know done 20 burpees and then sprinted 40 yards and then engaged targets i've i've gone through night shooting building clearing with it you have to understand your weapon system to the point that every time that my gun comes out i can feel it Mm -hmm. you know and it also it comes down to situational awareness 
unfortunately, uh, you know, I carry 45, so I don't get as many rounds uh, as somebody who carries a nine. And so I know by the weight of my gun and, and uh, how the slide moves when I'm close to being empty. So I, I already have it in my mind. Okay, this is the last round. Boom. All right, let's reload and go through it. You, you have to have that, that kind of training. Just because mm -hmm. you have, have the top of the line gear doesn't mean you're going to be useful. Sure. You know, uh, I, I carry a, a breaching kit as well in my bag. And it's nothing fancy. It's it's I went to <laughs> I went to Home Depot and and uh, grabbed a, a pry bar and a mallet and bolt cutters and and uh, all this stuff. You don't have to buy like Blackhawk, you know, mm -hmm. eight hundred to a thousand dollars worth of gear. But knowing how to use a pick and a rake and and a pry bar and a mallet, that stuff you need to know too. Mm -hmm. You know, just because you have it doesn't mean you're useful. Right. Absolutely. You can have million dollars worth of equipment, but if you have a five cent mindset or five cent experience with it, like it, it's useless. You can have all the tools and gadgets and, and cool stuff. That doesn't matter if you don't use it. And mm -hmm. it goes, I pull up this quote um, because as you were talking about it and talking about the guy that doesn't train, uh, you don't rise to the occasion. You sink to the level of your training. So if you don't train, when again, we'll go back to the Mike Tyson quote. You may have a plan, but the moment shit hits the fan, it's going to go to shit. Like, that's just what's going to happen. And, you know, everyone, I, I, at this point, I hate to say that probably every cop in the world has pulled their gun for one reason or another, right? But mm -hmm. you can tell the ones who don't know what they're doing when it gets out there, right? Like you break right. leather and then they're like limp wrist in it. Or, you know, they're, they're like, there's no command, even just holding their gun. Like, and I've seen it before. And I'm like, in my head, I, I, maybe I did address it. I don't know, but I'm like, who the fuck are you going to shoot? Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> like yeah. you're going to, you're going to jam it up the first time you pull that trigger. Like, what are we even doing here? There was a guy I used to work for or used to work with. And, and if he's listening, I'm not naming him for that reason. So uh, when I was working narcotics investigations, we got to review other people's body cameras for our investigations. And uh, we were watching one of his videos and he just pulls out his gun nonchalantly and uses the flashlight as a flashlight. And he's just scanning the yeah. room and he lasers like five people. And I'm like, what is going on here? Like that's, that's the bare minimum of shit you don't do, but it's just like, now you know that that guy like if that if that's how he's operating for a flashlight, right, do I really want him to be my buddy when we're going into an active shooter situation? And right. you gotta, it, it really you know you you gotta look at the people around you, and because at the end of the day they're the one that's ones that are gonna come and save your life when shit hits mm -hmm. the fan, and that's why I get so hard on, hard on. Huh, um, yeah. That's why I get so frustrated when people either don't train, they don't take care of themselves or whatever. And I'm no, I'm no Mr. Olympia or anything like that, but it's not for me. Well, it is, it is for me. <laughs> like, yeah, you got to go home, but you also have to get me home too. Like, right. and that's, that's where you need to be so proficient in everything, every aspect of this job. Uh, we play for a hundred percent. Yeah. And, and, you know, one argument that I've heard before, is guys are like, oh, ammo is so expensive. Well, you don't need ammo to to practice. You know, you can get snap caps. You can, they have laser systems. That it's like a little laser that you put in the chamber of your gun, and and you can practice shooting, practice drawing out at home. Like literally, 
go in your garage, you know, tell, tell the girl, Hey, I'm going to be in the garage for a little bit. Just have your gear unloaded, of course, and practice drawing out, practice trigger presses, like dry, dry presses. You know, everybody's like, Oh, it's just, you know, you're just, it's boring. Well, yeah, sure. It's boring. But those 10 minutes of dry presses that you're doing may come into a situation where that's life or death. Those 10 minutes mm-hmm. may save your life. Sure. And then you, yeah. on, on top of it, um, and I've seen it at the range with some of these shooting schools is people freeze when their gun jams. Sure. There, there's multiple different malfunctions that your, your gun can have, whether it's you're out of ammo, you have a stovepipe shell, or you have a double feed, you know, th- those things can happen, especially if you have a dirty gun, you're not taking care of it. So sit on your couch, you know, put in some snap caps, grab a, an empty shell casing of the right caliber and, and practice those malfunctions mm-hmm. and, and clearing them and getting them through. Because as soon as you get that malfunction, you don't want that, oh shit, what's going on kind of moment. You want to be able to recognize, okay, it's a double feed. I'm going to mm-hmm. do what I need to do to clear it and then get back in the fight. Yeah. Because as, as soon as you lose that mentality of I'm out of the fight, you will be. You, you always got to be in the fight, regardless of, of what's going on with your operating system. You got to stay in the fight. Right. You've got to fight through it every single time. And, you know, I uh, there's a couple things that I kind of take away from what you just said. I, I remember doing uh, force on force training. And, uh, you know, I hate sim rounds, right? I just don't like them, (laughs) but let's talk about how important they are as a training tool. Um, you know, no one wants to get shot. And, um, you know, we had a few different drills, um, where they, they made it. So the, the gun that I had, uh, or that the student had, uh, it's going to malfunction. They did that on purpose. Like you start, you hit, and when you hear click instead of bang, you shit your pants. Like that's uh-huh. that, you know, and I, I, I was, it pissed me off. Like when I got out of the thing, I was like, cause I didn't know that they set us up to have the malfunction. I was like, you gave me a fucking broken gun. He's like, did you work through it? I was like, yeah. He goes, you're welcome. And I was yeah. like, oh, okay. But yeah. you don't want that first time uh, when it's, when it matters, you know what I mean? So it's definitely, it's important to know what the equipment does, what it's not supposed to do and how to fix it. Everything you just said, um, you know, force on force is so important. Um, cause it, it's nothing to, you know, stand at 15 yards ding. And then you like step to the right, pull, go to a paper target. That's right. nothing like that's, right. that's cool. If you can't hit that, you got big problems. Cause what's going to happen when that paper target starts shooting back at you? Like, right. And you got to find real cover, not just like, you know, some static thing. All these things are just so important. And, you know, on here, I've talked a lot about uh, training as far as like knowledge. That's very important. Um, And I feel like we don't talk enough about the actual tactical and just like logistical way of doing the job. And it's literally the stuff that'll save your life. Right. And and I think mixing up the training scenarios to match the real world is, is something that's extremely important. Unfortunately, you know, with some of the training that I've done, nothing happens, you know, and, and, and that's a good thing to keep in mind too, is that sometimes maybe expecting something to happen, but it doesn't, but at the same time, you know, when, and I've done this training too, and I've kind of assisted in, in setting up scenarios where 
you, you go over and you stop a car and then suddenly the back passenger takes off running in unknown direction and, and seeing how some people react is, is interesting because mm -hmm. they aren't expecting it. Okay. This is just going to be, there's no such thing as a routine traffic stop. I hate it when people say, I oh, hate it's just it. a yeah. nothing is routine because you don't know who you're stopping. You don't know what's going to happen. So you need to be prepared for that. And that's another thing that you need to talk about with your partner. Hey partner, you know, if we, we stop a car and, and somebody takes off, what's our game plan? What are we going to do? And that's, it just goes again, back into mentality, that conversation you need to have with your partner. So mixing up training needs to be more of the norm. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of training cadres tend to quote unquote, put you through training and it's just kind of bare minimum. Oh yeah. Right. It is very cookie cutter. Like, right. uh, we did, we did active shooter training, um, a couple years ago and it was a single officer response. Fine. Um, and they didn't want anybody to talk about what the scenario was. Uh, it was because every scenario was the same. Right. And that's why I much preferred when you go into the room. Um, Cause it was like, it was set up in a school, but every classroom was a different scenario. Um, I much rather it change every time hey sometimes there's not going to be a shooter sometimes there's you know there's going to be two or wh whatever it might be you don't know because that's how it's going to be and what you said about the traffic stop ones um or even like we did ambush training where you know you're sitting in, a, in an area where they set it up to look like a restaurant or whatever and a guy walks in and you're like well he's going to be the one that's going to shoot us because he's the guy wearing the mask and then he didn't you know what i mean yeah. like and you start thinking like, man, if we were that vigilant in the actual field where that same scenario could play out, it plays out every single time, you know, you never know who's walking in, who's going to shoot you, whatever. Uh -huh. um, it, you're right. I think if you're, if you're listening and you're, uh, you're involved in training in any type of way, you need to switch it up. It can't be the same for every single person that walks through the room. Right. That's so important. That's a good point. Yeah. And, and, that, that same group of guys I was with that night, we did some training, uh, firearms training with each other. And the one of the ranges in the area, if you go in, you say you're a police officer, they give you a little discount. You can actually rent out an entire pistol bay and do what you want to do. So we took that opportunity and we actually drove our vehicle into the bay. And we practiced with vehicles. Mm -hmm. And we've... I've, we've done that in in-service training too, where we get to use our actual police vehicles and practice unassing the car mm -hmm. and, and going to work. And that's something that, that needs to be done more. And, and I get it. You know, you have to, to pay your, your instructors and there's a lot that you have to cover and all this. But if, if you're an instructor and you're listening, just think of something, a little bit more practical, a little bit more problem solving. Cause anybody mm -hmm. can shoot paper. You can be the best shooter in the world. You could hit a paper target at a headshot from a hundred yards away. But as soon as that static scenario changes into a dynamic scenario, your brain may freeze. That's the thing about all this is that the brain is such a intricate machine that you just don't know what it's going to do in a situation until you're actually there. The best you can do is provide a, a safe environment in which your brain is challenged. It is trying to think through the problem and then 
when that scenario actually happens, at least you have some sort of insight into how your brain's going to work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's the whole OODA loop thing. You know, it, it's trying to predict what's going to happen. And then when you do, something's going to change and it's going to, it's going to throw you for a loop. And, uh, it, it's important to train those, those unforeseen scenarios as far as like range shooting and stuff like that. We did a couple times, uh, shooting from vehicles, like you said, um, where they, we took like a, a car from the impound lot, you know, surrendered or whatever. And they were like, all right, we're going to set up targets. And you're, we literally got to shoot, um, training rounds through the windows. Um, uh, so that way, you know what it's like to shoot through glass and how the, the, the ball tumbles and stuff like that. Um, that was a great experience, you know, cause that's one of those things like you won't know, how are you going to know, you know, or shooting into a car, uh, we did that as well. So, you know, like if you're shooting from the back of the car, where it's going to go, um, cause all the different tumbling that happens within a vehicle is, is pretty interesting actually. Um, so all those things that you said, um, stress shoots, those are a great idea too. Um, I liked what you said about, you know, doing the burpees and doing the running and then shooting because that's a great way to get your heart rate going because that's, what's going to happen. The moment you have to pull and shoot, uh, your heart rate's going to be up. You know, mm -hmm. something's going to be happening. You're going to be stressed the fuck out. Um, so it's not going to be, all right, shooters ready. It's not like that. Um, so it's very important to train that way too, I think. And I, I think you're right. I think too many people in, in training departments, um, they don't do it because it's easy to just do their quals, do some, you know, static shoots and whichever. And yeah, you can check a box, but... And what you said about the money thing, this is saving lives. So it's not, you can't put a price tag on that. Right. And one thing that I enjoy most um, when I talk about training is discussing the scientifics behind what you're doing. Um, so a lot of people refer to this kind of stuff as, oh, it's muscle memory. But when you actually look at, at the facts, your muscles don't store memory. It's all in the brain. And there's actually a process called myelination that occurs when you go through a, a physical repetition so many times. And what it is, is your brain secretes this chemical called myelin, and it basically builds a bridge between neurons. So in that way, information is able to tr travel faster between neurons. So when your brain sees some sort of stimulant, if you have that, that myelination and it, it properly occurred with all your training, you're able to react faster and you, you don't have second guesses on what you're doing. Your body just reacts because the brain is used to that kind of stimulation. So that's the scientific approach to all this training. And, you know, people are like, well, why do I need to train? Well, you're, you're rebuilding your brain. You're redesigning your brain, uh, to react in a certain way. And you know, that, that's good and bad because if you train wrong and you do these wrong repetitions over and over, that myelination is, is almost set, you know, the, it's hard to break habits. Well, that's mm -hmm. why is because your brain is set that way. So if you train properly, then your brain is, is set up for those kind of situations. And the more prepared you are for a situation like that, the more confident you are in your response to it. You know, there's, there's again, there's no second guessing, you right. know, that you can do what needs to be done. Yeah. Confidence in this job. And I've talked about this many times uh, is 
so important. I mean, if you're not confident in your equipment and your abilities, you know, you're setting yourself up for failure on multiple different levels. And uh, I liked what you said about training properly, because if you train improperly, uh, you're going to build the, the myelination. That's a new word. I picked that one up today. Thank you. Um, in the wrong way. And it, it kind of brought me back when, when I was going to the police Academy, I never shot a gun before in my life. Um, it was my first time. Uh, so, you know, it, it was over very quickly, but uh, no, um, <laughs> but they, they say the instructors say that that's actually a good thing. Cause they don't have to break bad habits at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can think about that in other ways too, you know, driving uh, motorcycle, whatever the, you know, your, your interests might be. So it's good to be a clean slate. Um, obviously at this point, people listening who have been on the job, uh, you can still teach an old dog new tricks. So even if you may have bad habits or whatever, start training now or retraining yourself. So that way, you know, your brain can learn new ways to do this or the proper way to do certain things. Um, you know, even though, you know, I've been out of the job for about nine months now, um, there's certain things that will trigger certain responses for me. You know, it, it was only nine months ago that I was still on the line. Uh, and, and, you know, when, when I was qualifying, I knew what to do. You know what I mean? It's just it, certain things were just built into my brain to know how to do it, whether it's the way we reload or the way we shoot or, or move or whatever. And even my training uh, people at the time, because I had just joined the new agency, they're like, oh, wow, they actually taught you right there. They taught you. But then they talk shit and whatever. But it's so important to do all these things, do them properly and do them often. And I think that's really the important thing. And from someone who has experienced things and certain situations such as yourself, you know, it's coming from a, a place of knowledge. Now, another thing I want to talk about real quick is obviously the mental toughness of it, too. Um, you talked about the girl that was hiding under the table who said, I can't go. I can't go towards safety because she's scared. And we would hope that a police officer would never say, I can't do this because I'm scared. And here's the here's the sick little joke that no one's ever going to talk about. I think more police officers get scared than they want to admit. Um, yeah. In that inst- incident, you hear the bang. You obviously, your mind went straight to, I got to get out of here. You were not the girl under the table, obviously. Um, How and what did you, how did you train your mind to take that mindset that I'm going to get out of here? I mean, that's, you're in a shitty situation, right? I mean, it's so, Mm -hmm. I can empathize with that girl. Like if you're in that situation and you have no experience in the, in that kind of thing, I get it. I can understand how this seems like the end of the world. The sky is falling. Mm-hmm. So what have you done or what did you do to have that position to win that mindset of I'm going to get through this? What, what was that? Uh, I guess for lack of a better term, acceptance, accepting that this is happening because I, I, I'm not going to lie to you, 10. I was scared shitless. That was the situation that I've been most scared in, in my entire life. And, you know, going back to how I, I grew up hunting and being in the woods, I've been stalked by mountain lions. I ran into bears that night, that 
very minute amount of time that I was in that bar was the most scared I've ever been. And I just accepted this is the situation that I'm in. It's not going to get any better unless my feet start working, unless I keep my head, you know, down on the ground and, and, uh, do what I need to do. And it, it, it kind of goes into the mentality of being a police officer in which we do put ourselves below other people, you know, the safety of the public is number one. And so that's kind of where the mentality went of, okay, I'm here. These other people are here. It's not, I need to get out. It's we need to get out. And, you know, being faced with somebody who's armed to the teeth and, and you've got nothing but your two hands, you got to make the best of that situation. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you, you gotta stay in the fight just cause you, just cause you're out and you don't have, have your, your gun with you or, you know, a knife or anything like that doesn't mean you're out of the fight. There's other things that you can do. And so just having that acceptance that you're in that situation, you have options, you need to do what you're on this earth to do. Um, I, th- I think you're right. Uh, with a couple different things when they teach active shooter response to civilians, you know, they, they, or yeah, pretty much civilians. Um, they say, you know, run, hide, fight, whatever it might be. Um, and think about it, this situation, you know, you're, you were a trained police officer and the best option at that time was to run. Um, obviously you didn't leave anyone behind. You grabbed everyone you could and moved them over. Um, but I feel like, in our in our alpha mindset and the machos thing is like oh no man i'm gonna take the guy on sometimes that's not the best option it's really not you know what i mean you really have to weigh each scenario for what it is i loved what you said about acceptance when i was this is not the same scenario but when i was going through uh oc training first time getting sprayed and i was not looking forward to it i (laughs) I was at the bottom of the list. So I saw everybody else suffering. And I was like, I said to the trainer, I was like, I really don't want to do this. And he gave probably the best rah-rah speech that I heard to that point. And he basically said, he's like, you're here. Fucking do it. Like, you know what I mean? Like that acceptance, like it's not going to get. And once the spray hit and my eyes fucking slammed shut, he's like, it's not going to get any better. You might as well just fight through it. Mm -hmm. And that is an amazing mindset to have. I love that you said that because that triggered that memory of mine is that, you know, same trainer actually once said, you know, the best way to eat a shit sandwich is one bite at a time. Like you, yep. you've got it, you know, so you got to own it and, and what happens happens. Um, you can, you can lay down and let the world happen to you um, or you could go out swinging, you know what I mean? And think about, the, the story you said about the bar stool going through and hitting you in the head that you didn't even, you know, realize that it injured you until hours later, because obviously your adrenaline and everything was pumping. Um, but that's what we were saying earlier, fight to win. Like, you know, you, you could have focused on that and be like, wow, my head fucking hurts. Whatever. But you didn't, you were focused on what you were doing. And um, that's, that's so important. You know what I mean? So I think, everything that you've said about your mindset and your preparedness and then your after action. Um, I think it's all things that are important and I hope everybody uh, takes it to heart. I think that there's a lot to take away from it. Um, we do have a few uh, listener questions. Okay. 
So I want to get to those real quick before we sign off this evening. So let me go ahead and pull them up. And while you're finding those, I just want to, to say that, like, you know, I, I know that a lot of, of your listeners are not law enforcement, um, but the fact that these kind of situations are a real world scenario, I think even those those listeners who aren't law enforcement can benefit from this because it, it is all about mindset. It doesn't matter if you're a police officer, you know, a U.S. Army Ranger or an accountant. If you have the right mindset, you can live through this kind of situation and and start thinking outside the box of whenever you go to the store or the movie theater, even just a simple, okay, where are my exits compared to where I'm sitting? Or, mm-hmm. you know, what's around me that I can use to either conceal myself or if I'm face to face with the, the threat, I can somehow protect myself. Yeah, you know? I, th- I, th- I think you're right. Um, you're right for civilians and non-law enforcement uh, it's important, you know, cause like, like you said, unfortunately these things are, um, it, it, they're, they're becoming frequent or they, they are frequent and, um, it's important to have that mindset. You're absolutely right. The questions we got for you today, they're not, not the best. Um, first one it says is everyone talks uh, about running in, everyone talks big about running in, but how many actually do? Um, and it goes back to what we were just talking about, that you don't always have to be the one to end the threat. Sometimes the most important thing you can do is get out. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say to that? Well, I mean, it kind of goes to what use are you if you put yourself in a situation that you can't do any good? Um, you know, and I guess one way to relate it is responding to a backup request with your lights and sirens. Some guys I've ridden with, drive balls to the wall, hundred miles an hour, blowing red lights without any care in the world. Others, they're a little bit more cautious. So it's like running in and not being prepared to handle business. You're not helping anybody. I, I by all means support running in and saving lives and doing what you got to do, but you got to make sure that you're, you're going to do it right. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, you could sit there in your patrol car and think, oh yeah, if, if an active shooter call comes out, I'm, hauling ass head first into that door and I'm going to handle. But if you haven't trained, if you haven't gone through it in your mind as to what you're going to do, then you're no good to anybody. And it just, it goes back to that training, even just like simply sitting and thinking about the scenario and, and ways that you can approach the situation is beneficial than just saying, ah, I can handle it when it comes. You, you, you got to, if you have the mentality to run in, you got to have the physical ability to handle business. Mm-hmm. That's great. I th- you're right. It, it's one thing to talk the big game, but you, you better back it up when you get there. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, this next question, it's basically been the theme of the entire episode, but uh, when off duty and unarmed in the club, how does one react? I would basically say, go back one hour and start listening all over again. And you'll figure it out. <laughs> I think we, I think we basically nailed that one home. Um, this, 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 uh, next two ones are kind of political. We, we don't have to touch them if you don't want to, but they're basically a uh, stance on newly proposed gun legislation. Uh, you know, I think I'm going to pass on that one and, mm-hmm. and, and solely, you know, I have my opinions. Everybody has theirs. However, I'm, I'm still here on a platform that is meant for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not a, a political debate. And on top of it, I'm still an active duty police officer. 
Um, right. And and for those who aren't in law enforcement, you have to understand that when you're a police officer, you have no opinion. You have to to abide by what is set in place, um, regardless of what's being debated. You have to still abide by what's in place. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I get I get a few people every once in a while. They they'll slide into my DMs. They'll be like, you know, either I did or did not comment on a political topic, and it's like I don't get political. Um, sometimes I use my platform to vent frustrations about things going on in the world, but. And I, I try to, whenever I say something political, I always try to balance it immediately and say, you know, right or left, it doesn't matter. They both suck, basically. Yeah. So I agree. You know, we we may have opinions on pieces of legislation or whatever, or, you know, worry that something that gets passed may affect us one way or another, not even just talking about firearms or whatever. Um, but at the end of the day with that, what good does that worry or that comment that you're going to make do? Right. Right. It's not going to change the law. It's not going to stop it from getting voted on. Like those people in Washington, uh, they have the final say. So unfortunately we, as the citizens, uh, our voice is our vote or our vote is our voice. Uh, and that's really it. I mean, everyone, again, it goes back to people talking a big game, like, Oh, they ain't taking my guns. Like, dude, stop. You, you're, you're not stopping nothing. Like, what do you right. what, stop? Well, and, and on top of it, it, it does, it, you have to take it into account, again, for those who are not law enforcement, when you get your badge, it's not a shiny piece of tin that you can, you know, wear around and, and, you know, look good in. That badge represents an oath. And part of that oath is stating that you'll protect the Constitution from all threats, both foreign and domestic. And, you know, people, officers may disagree with, with parts of, of law, but at the same time, we did take an oath to protect it. it regardless of whether or not we agree we still have a duty to protect it and it also with it comes uh being impartial mm -hmm. uh, i remember back during all the george floyd protests and everything i was working one of them and someone wanted me to take a knee and i was like no i was like i'm here to protect you make sure nothing bad happens to you allowing you to express your first amendment right right um i am in the same vein, in the same mindset of not partaking in that protest, uh, that I, I told the person, I said, that would be the exact same way that I can't fly or be on duty and grab a, you know, support Trump or support Biden flyer. Like, I can't do that. That I was like, it's the exact same thing. There's a, there's a part about being impartial mm -hmm. where the only side that I can take is legal versus illegal. That's right literally it right so everybody non-law enforcement i know it kind of gets fudged and kind of grayed a lot especially with social media and, and certain platforms but that's i think uh cj and i kind of we we agree on that next question from my buddy uh at heroed out uh what have you done to heal uh after the fact and the fallout you know that's a great question and uh i even have like a little list of things i want to touch on yeah. And one of them is the aftermath. Um, you know, we, we have this cultural mindset in law enforcement that we're supposed to be the toughest sons of bitches out there. Nothing gets to us. And after those events, I tried to still have that mindset. And luckily, I was honest enough with myself to realize that that's not the mindset to have. Working through your emotions, feel what you feel. You know, uh, it, it's a shitty situation. You have to be able to feel 
those emotions because once you feel those and identify that that's how you feel, you can start working towards a solution to moving past it. And it's not to say that this scenario is ever going to go away. I, I think about it maybe two, three times a week and it's acceptance, acceptance that it happened. Um, you know, I, God didn't call my number that day. So I'm still here to serve a purpose and it's, it doesn't benefit anybody if I end up crumbling in those emotions because I decide to not talk about it. I decide to resort to other coping mechanisms like alcohol or, or nicotine abuse or, or anything like that. I try to vent my emotions. You know, I have a, a, a lady in my life who's very dear to me and, and she has been with me ever since that night. And, uh, She's been very supportive. So if you have family or friends, again, having those two other buddies who are there with me and just being honest with them and yourself really helps with coping. The honesty is a big deal. I was involved in a couple critical incidents in the very beginning of my career. And I thought I was okay with it. Like, you know, I just kind of compartmentalized what cops do best. Mm -hmm. And um, I just went about life, you know, and yeah. then some time passed. Uh, my girlfriend and I, we just started dating and I was having some flashbacks about some of the things that had happened. My girlfriend's a dispatcher. She would understand it. But I was like, well, you know, we're dating. We just started dating. I don't want to start unloading all these things on her, scare mm -hmm. her away, eat up all the time we have together, worried about this stuff. So I internalized it and it manifested in negative coping mechanisms, stuff that kind of put our relationship in jeopardy for a minute. Mm -hmm. It was at that moment when when got called out on the carpet about it. And I've kind of talked about it in the past, but um, I realized that the open and honesty part needs to happen. You need yes. to have first off, if you have a partner that you can't open up to, that's that's sign one that you're going to need to reevaluate. But what good is them being there? If you don't use them, that's exactly what they're there for. Yeah, they look pretty and, you know, they make you happy. But they need to help you unbox those those things that you you locked away. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult. I had a conversation with uh, with a guy and I told him, I'm like, there's some stuff that I don't feel comfortable talking to loved ones about. I just, you know, it's either too hard or too difficult or I'm worried they don't understand. Find people that do. Right. Just like you said, you've got your lady, but you've also got your buddies. Um, I don't know if you see a therapist, but there are people out there that will understand. And you just yeah. have to be willing to be open and honest with those different people. Yeah. And, and I'm glad that you brought up the, the topic of therapists. Now, I, I, I didn't go see a therapist because um, I didn't feel it rise to that situation where I needed a therapist. However, I mean, in a way I did because I had my 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 girl and my friends who were there with me, they kind of count as a therapist. You know, most most agencies offer some sort of therapy. I know that there's uh, kind of some stigma behind using department therapists because they may report back to your commanding officer some stuff that you said. But that doesn't mean you can't use a therapist. There's private therapists where there is mm -hmm. that that level of doctor patient confidentiality where anything you say to them cannot get back to to your command. So, you know, you need to break down that, that stigma of using a therapist um, and again, get away from that, that mentality that we're the toughest sons of bitches out there. Because right. uh, if, if you want a career in law enforcement, which 
for most guys is, you know, 30 years or depending on your agency, maybe a little bit less, but you're not going to make it 30 years in life by bottling that stuff up. And, mm-hmm. and if you look at statistics of, of law enforcement officers who do their 30 years and then retire, their life expectancy is only a handful of years. Mm-hmm. So if you don't tend to it, if you don't tend to your brain the proper way early on, you're not going to be able to enjoy your pension. You're not going to be able to enjoy your, your 401k or your deferred comp. You're not going to be able to go travel and buy that motor home and, and, you know, see your grandkids. You got to take care of yourself now so you can enjoy life later on. Right. Absolutely. I use the analogy about boxing stuff up, putting it in the closet. Uh, eventually, all that shit's going to topple over on you. And that's that's exactly what you're talking about, whether, you know, you, you bust it all down and uh, it regurgitates itself as a substance abuse problem, like you were talking about with alcohol or nicotine or pills or whatever it might be, um, or the stress is so bad that it puts a tax on your heart. Um, or so many other issues, you know, you need to process the things you experience, um, on duty and off duty, obviously. I mean, you experience stuff off duty and we all do. I mean, you know, there's, there's certain things that have affected me in the past, um, that I'm still working through. And, and sometimes it doesn't manifest right away. It'll be years in, in, in the future and be like, man, I didn't realize this call is is getting to me, but it's getting to me now, you know? Mm -hmm. So just take, take stock of what you have going on and, and, you know, uh, don't feel ashamed for having to talk to someone. And I liked how you said, um, you know, your therapist was your girlfriend and it was your, your buddies. Like it, yes, it does help sometimes when you go see someone who's, you know, licensed and, and got the, the school in the back it up, but it doesn't always have to rise to that occasion. And I really liked how you said that just being comfortable to open up to certain people who, you know, your, your circle of trust, sometimes that's all that you need to do. And sometimes it need more, sometimes you need less, you know, it's, you gotta, you gotta be comfortable making those decisions. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's see what else we have here. Uh, you said you had a list. Have we covered everything on the list or are there more stuff that you want to touch on? No, that's, that's actually, we, we hit everything on, on the things that I will at least want to talk about. Perfect. I've got one last question from Andy Hamilton. I don't know him personally. I don't think I've ever talked to him, but, uh, he says, what about that day strengthens you and what makes you better? You know, that, that day strengthened me a lot, um, both in my professional life and my off duty life. Um, I, let's talk about from off duty. Um, I appreciate things more now, you know, being in that kind of situation, you do, like they say in zombie land, have to appreciate the little things, you know, uh, and not let stuff stress you out because at the end of the day, anything that stresses you out, there's always going to be a solution to it. And if there's not a solution, well, shit, that's just life. And, and you got to adapt to it. So being able to appreciate the little things and learn how to manage my stress, you know, I've, I've become more health conscious by going to the gym more because I feel, you know, that's, that's my moment of Zen is, is at the gym and eating properly and uh, just communicating my emotions to be able to move past it and live a fruitful life. In terms of my professional life, it has opened my eyes to the possibility of what can go wrong because they they talk about active shooter training and all this stuff. And I guarantee you there's a fair population of officers and just people in general who think, oh, that'll never happen to me. That'll never happen. But 
And I was one of those people. I, I, I thought, ah, oh, man, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, run into a gunman at a bar. Like, I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, do what I got to do to, to decompress. True. But it happened. But it happened. So it, it strengthened me because I'm a little bit more prepared um, in terms of how to respond. And on top of it, it gave me an opportunity to uh, pass my experiences along to people who are also more likely to run into that situation. You know, I, I did debriefs with our SWAT team and and uh, other tactics teams and gave them an insight as to what happened because as even though we're first responders, we respond to an incident after it happens or while it's happening. Mm-hmm. And there's some key things to take away from uh, what to keep in mind while it's happening. So me being able to pass that along to my, my brothers and sisters is, 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 is great. It, it, it allows me to teach them uh, what to expect and try to get them into the right mindset. Definitely. There was, um, there was a nightclub I was at. Um, I was probably about a year or two on. I was at a concert packed wall to wall and uh, it was dark. It was loud. And it was in Orlando, which it was not very far from Pulse, the nightclub. Mm-hmm. And um, it was probably about a year or two after. I was I was at the club. I was at the club with my nephew, who's six years younger than me, and um, we're enjoying. And out of nowhere, my mind switched, and mm-hmm. I was suddenly. I wouldn't say a full panic mode, but we were at like condition orange approaching red. Like I was not having a good time. Uh-huh. I was looking at how tight we were packed. The la- I was, and I was basically in my mind, I was saying if, if shit goes bad, we're fucked. That's kind of where my mind was. Yeah. Um, and it's, so it's so important to take stories like yours. Cause that's a, that's a common occurrence, right? People go to nightclubs, they go to bars, they go to concerts, Lots of people, and it could very easily be a situation like you've experienced. Um, so I, I appreciate uh, your perspective and you kind of talking about different things to, again, like we said in the beginning, like mull over and think about because you're going to be at a nightclub, at a bar, at a supermarket, and now it's suddenly, hopefully, the people listening going, where is the closest exit? You know, what? Mm-hmm. What do I, where is cover, which for everyone that's not a cop cover is something that a bullet can't get through. Concealment is something that they can't see just right. so we know, you know, I don't want you hiding behind a magazine rack thinking, Oh, I got cover. You don't, no. uh, but that's a story yeah. for a different time. Well, and, all and that good r- real quick, just to touch on, on the whole uh, cover and concealment thing. I know it's a story for another time. However, if, if anybody goes onto YouTube, there's a couple of, of channels that I watch I'm not being sponsoring. I'm not sponsoring them or getting any profit from this, but uh, Grantham and Demolition Ranch, they tend to do a lot of shooting videos where they take everyday objects to see what can stop a bullet. So if you're mm. interested in, in, in learning what can stop a bullet, check out those, those YouTube uh, channels. Again, I'm not sponsoring them. It's just uh, some knowledge to pass on. Sure. And, you know, I had a, uh, I had a lieutenant who was a SWAT commander. And he would always walk down the hall and tap the tap the wall. And I was like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm trying to figure out which wall's hollow, which one isn't. So that way, if anything goes wrong, I, and you guess, 
I do that now all the time. I just tap the wall and I'm like, all right, what's hollow? What can I hide behind? Small shit like that, man, just like sticks with you. You know, yeah. it's like that. I mean, that was that was a passing conversation. And suddenly it's something I do. It, it became a habit. And right. hopefully I never need to use that habit. But it's a good thing to know, like, all right, this is a sturdy wall. I can hide behind this for a minute and things like that. Yeah. Um, all that being said, um, I think we're about to wrap. Once again, CJ, I really appreciate you taking your time uh, telling us about your story, your experience, both before, during, and after. Um, it's re- It was a really important story, and I'm, I'm grateful that you shared it with us. Yeah, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to at least uh, pass on something to your listeners to chew on uh, whenever they, they go start a watch and, and load up their cars. Absolutely. And uh, everyone listening, if you hit me up privately – I think you'd be okay with that. If people have questions, I can kind of funnel them to you. Yeah. Um, uh, he's not good. We're not going publicly with, with who he is or whatever, but if you have any questions for CJ message me and I will go ahead and get you in contact with CJ. And um, you know, like he said, he is active law enforcement. And as, even though we have the disclaimer, it, it doesn't matter. Technically, you know, IA could screw us over for nothing. So that being said, uh, <laughs> I'm going to protect his identity, but if anyone wants to have any questions or, you know, wants to pick CJ's brain, message me, I'll message him and we'll get you through to him. Um, CJ, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate all your time. Yeah, of course, man. Anytime. All right, everyone listen, stay tuned. I'll be right back to wrap it up. Uh, once again, this was CJ and, uh, and the first episode of I survive one second. I kind of ended the interview a little awkwardly, but still got a little bit more to talk to you guys about, and uh, then we're going to end. So we're not done just yet. Uh, first things first, though, I want to thank my guest, CJ, for messaging me, telling me about his situation, his experience, and being so willing to share with me. Absolutely amazing. If you happen to have survived a critical incident such as this, or an on-duty shooting, or anything where... You have that survivor's mentality. Please message me on Instagram at 108 underscore memes, or you can email me the 108 podcast at gmail.com, and I will be happy to have you on and talk about your story. We have one more I survived planned for the rest of season two, and it's going to be next month. So keep an eye out for that. We're going to be talking to a responding officer from the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Florida. If Again, if you have any questions for CJ regarding this incident, regarding proper training, regarding mindset, again, message me at those other ways that I mentioned, and I will get the message to him and he will reach out to you. Obviously, he's still an active duty police officer, so his anonymity is important and... I am happy to protect it. That concludes the first episode of I Survived and episode 238. Next week, we will be talking to Jamil. Jamil is a retired police officer who is going to tell us all about sobriety, the importance of that in law enforcement. And again, it's going to be another mentality mindset based episode. 
Following that episode, we have episode 240 coming up. It's a two-part episode with poorly made police memes. Part one will be on his show. Part two will be on my show. And we'll discuss both of ours leaving the job and what it's done to us, for us, and give you some insight regarding that. Following that, I have five more episodes of the podcast for this summer, for this year. And uh, we're going to go out strong. Can't wait to tell you everybody that's going to be on and all the different surprises I have planned. In the meantime, if this is your first time listening to the 10A podcast, welcome. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed. Please go back and listen to previous episodes and get an idea of what we do all the time. And regardless if you have been here before or this is your first time, please rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. If you're on Apple Podcasts, you can go ahead and rate and review. If you're on Spotify, you can rate and any others. Honestly, I'm not quite sure, but please do it if you can. It helps me get the show seen by more people, which means we can get this story out there more and all the other stories that we've shared up to this point. Also, I would like to thank my sponsors for the show. In the beginning, we had the ad for TOC Public Relations. If you work in law enforcement or if you have a law enforcement-based company or foundation and you want to improve your social media strategies or just your uh, marketing strategies in general, contact my girl Tamron, TOC Public Relations, or LEO.social, or I'm sorry, LE.social, and um, she'll be able to hook you up. She's absolutely amazing. My second sponsor is Fit Responders. You know, we talk a lot about mindset on this show, but there's another part of being a well-rounded police officer. And frankly, it's not being well-rounded. It's about being in shape. It's about taking care of yourself and taking care of your body. Fit Responders is a law enforcement owned company that is going to help you do just that. They're going to tell you about nutrition. They're going to tell you about physical fitness and they're going to have a fun time doing it. So please go check out Fit Responders on Instagram and TOC Public Relations and they will really appreciate it as will I. That concludes the show today, folks. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thank you for listening to CJ's story. Thank you to CJ for being here and helping me out. Really appreciate it. I learned a lot, have a lot to take away from it. As we move forward in life, there's a lot to take away. And really quick, before we say goodbye, I want to talk about the music real quick. The music was provided by Jeff Smith of Street Cop Training. He came out with this song. He showed it to me. I loved it. I said, dude, I want to put it on the show, and he gave it to me. So please go check out Jeff Smith on Instagram, on Facebook. He's a great guy, great instructor, very knowledgeable. We had him on the show back in, I think, November or December. Very great. And we're going to wrap up the show with a classic song by Jack's Mannequin called Swim. And really, it's the mentality that has helped me get through a lot of hard stuff. And uh, hopefully it helps you as well. Until next time, friends, take care of each other. Stay safe. 10-8. You gotta swim Swim for your life Swim for the music that saves you When you're not so sure you'll survive You gotta swim And swim when it hurts The whole world is watching You haven't come this far To fall off the earth Currents will pull you away from your love Just keep your head above I found a tidal wave